Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow, what can I say? Matt Higgins, part two. Oh man, part two, burn the boats. We talked about so much cool stuff. Episode 196 in May was part one. If you haven't heard that, go listen to that. But you got to listen to this episode. We went super deep. We talked about picking the right partner, sharing values, his journey to becoming a professor, a fellow at Harvard. Uh, So much. Proprietary insights. I mean, this was just so much fun. I love Matt Higgins. Appreciate him. And you're going to love this episode. Enjoy. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mishazi. Boy, do we have a special guest, a repeat guest, Matt Higgins, back in the house. What's up, my man? It's good. I must have done okay the first time, right? Or else you wouldn't have me back. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like like a little bit, little good, like amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm so pumped, so pumped to have you here again, my friend. Um, how you been? I've been great. I've been grinding it out, as you know, since last we spoke. I guess we spoke when just when I did the launch, right? And now it's a few months later. It feels like... Yeah. I think it was the end of April because we launched the episode during your book launch on May 3rd. Um, do you mind if I give our, our guests who have, didn't hear the first episode, I want to give them a little bit of background on you and on our previous episodes so they can check that out. Because this is for, for listeners, I do this every now and again when I have a really badass guest who's doing some cool stuff. I'll ask them to come and finish the episode because we don't get deep enough into the episode. I'm like, you got to come back, man. Like, like my brain's exploding. So Matt's gracious enough to come back and finish the episode. We talk more about his book. Um, but you got to listen to the first episode. So for listeners who did not listen to the first episode, episode 196, we aired it on May 3rd. Uh, like, first of all, we're going to be talking about the book more today, uh, Burn the Boats, uh, Harper Collins' book. And uh, it's Matt's amazing book. Uh, we're going deeper on that book. But, but you, A, you got to read the book. B, you got to listen to the show because you get a lot of like the behind the scenes stuff on what, on what the book's about. Um, but yeah, you got to listen to that episode. And um, I'm just going to give your quick bio, Matt. And then I want to dive just right into questions. Are you cool with that? Please. Let's do it. Okay, so guys, uh, Matt is the CEO and co-founder of RSE Ventures. Uh, it's a it's a business, a private equity business he has with Stephen Ross, um, investing in stuff like Momofuku and Milk Bar and a ton of other stuff that you've heard of. Uh, was the youngest press secretary in the history of New York City. Guest Shark Tank, uh, Shark on Shark Tank, executive fellow at Harvard. We're talking about that today, and uh, and most notably, high school dropout who wrote the book. 
Burn the Boats um, that just came out this year. And and I said it to you, it's funny, I was re-listening to the episode and I was like, there's so the, the book has so much information. It, it's like three books in one. So uh, hence the reason why we're back to talk about it on the show. But man, uh, welcome back to the show. I'd love if you'd love, I would love if you would kind of talk a little bit about the book, the book launch, give a little bit of background on, on what's been going on with that because I've been following you on social, man, and you've been like all over the place, just crushing it. I'd love for you to kind of give our, our listeners a little bit of, of that back backstory. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you for that bio. I love that short. And sp- that should be my bio every time. Like, let's just get right to it. I, it's so painful to listen to your own bio. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so 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 uh, for those who didn't hear the first episode, I'll try not to be too redundant. But, you know, I have this crazy origin story that we got into in the first episode, being a high school dropout and growing up poor and take care of my mother. And uh, and uh, at some point, I transitioned from feeling hopeless to just pay, taking matters into my own hands. And I, I developed a uh, identified a hack, which was drop out of high school at 16, burn the boats, and you could take your GD. If you crush your GD, which is usually an oxymoron, crushing the GD is usually a <laughs> test of last resort. But, you know, to be reality is it's pretty basic stuff. And so I figured nobody uses algebra anyway. And I dropped out of high school, took my GD at 16 and got in college when I was uh, 16. So, and the, 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 the reason, and I didn't have the language for this when I was a kid, but the reason why I wrote for the, wrote the book is I realized, you know, I am, I am not naturally self-possessed. I'm not Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank, my colleague. Uh, I have dealt with anxiety and imposter syndrome and the shame of uh, growing up in a roach motel as a kid and eating government cheese. Like I had all these this baggage that I was carrying, but I realized that despite that baggage, the way I was able to achieve everything I've achieved in my life is by giving myself no escape, no backup plan, no retreat. And it all began with this idea of sabotaging um, high school so that when the guidance counselors and teachers and police would inevitably intervene when I was hanging out at McDonald's all day, that I was able to resist that pressure because I knew it was right for me. And so what I wanted to do with the book is take this very jingoistic term, you know, burn the boats that is usually implies almost like a recklessness or a kind of a selfishness uh, and actually appropriated for the rest of us who might have anxiety and maybe uh, risk averse. And we self-select out of ambition because we don't have the tools to go all in on plan A. And so the book is an attempt to pull forward this doctrine, which goes back to the beginning of recorded history, this idea how military generals would literally burn the boats, eliminate their retreat, pull forward this doctrine and prove to you, dear listeners, that science demonstrates that merely contemplating a backup plan is the very reason why you're being forced to need one. And it's because the energy leakage of looking over your shoulder constantly is enough to materially reduce, one, the likelihood you'll be successful, and two, uh, your intrinsic motivation. So I worked for years to uh, offer case studies in a more narrative format rather than prescriptive book to show how people at all levels, NFL coaches, my partner Scarlett Johansson, like, have all had to cross the threshold of commitment. I had to burn their metaphorical boats. But how do you do it? And that's what I did with my book. And Ever since I talked to you, which I can't believe is in May, I have been on an unrelenting campaign, and I could go a little bit deeper as to what's driving my frenetic behavior uh, uh, when we get into it. But that's the setup. I love it, man. And yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I just finished my thirty fourth book for the year, and your book has been as one of those thirty four, and it, and yours is is one of the, my favorite books that I've read this that's year. That's amazing. Thank so, you, by the way. So. Like I, I appreciate it. There's a lot. There's 33 other people who, if I met, I wouldn't say that to. No, so, I appreciate um, it. And I know I've, <laughs> and it's actually messing my head up. No, 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 you know, you know, no, I will say this about them, but, but, um, 
and the reason for it, and we kind of talked about this at the end of the last episode, is I mean, dude, there's so much in the book. It really, it, you really do like, there's, you know, we talked about this too. It's like, there's people that you can tell they're just like, you know, they're writing a book to get a book out. And then there's writing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or, or it's like, it's, you know, I'm not going to name names because there's some amazing people that I've interviewed who've written cool books. And, but, but you can tell like, that's just part of like their, their deal. Like they're like, they got a book a year, a book every other year. And, and so they're kind of always, it's a new idea and then they'll write, you know, it's like, uh, they'll, they'll maximize their fonts to get to 200 pages. And, and your book was the opposite, man. I was like, dude, there's so much here. Like you literally, it's, it's you pour you pour everything in the book so so for listeners you no, gotta get the book you know thank you for saying that because i really did i wasn't uh, my this was an attempt to bleed out and leave it on the field not to preserve a sub thesis so i could write book two in fact i keep getting asked when's the next book i'm like it's like rocky Balboa. you know there ain't gonna be a rematch like i died for that book like yeah obviously i'm a writer but i don't want to write i didn't so much write burn the boats as i engineered an outcome with the book mm-hmm. right so and we again we go deeper into that Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Yeah, like, man, it's, it's so much has happened. I saw you and and just running around, like really getting after it, leaving all the field, as you said, just making this a successful launch. But yeah, I'd love if you would maybe give us some of the background on, on how the launch has gone, you know, lessons learned, just, just maybe some context around why did you go put that effort in? I mean, I get it. You want it to be successful, but, but, but what was that? What was, what was that all about? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. And I have to, I mean, I want to be careful not come across as like sanctimonious, preachy, but I really feel like I didn't write a book as so much as I engineered an outcome. And the outcome that I wanted to engineer was holding up a mirror to somebody who suspects they have more to give this world and maybe feels unsupported, whether unsupported by their own brain and their own inner inside voice or unsupported by people around them, whatever it is, this is an attempt to fight for the underdog. And really me as like a little 16 year old boy wishing that somebody had intervened and kind of gave me a hand and showed me what the future might hold. And, and also to make some sense out of a lot of the pain and trauma that I went through for all those years, which I'm still frankly dealing with and get into that too. But that is my purpose. I've never been on more of a mission in my life in a way that has felt more natural to what I'm supposed to be doing and organic mm. than what I'm doing with this book. So, but here's the interesting thing, right? So you had mentioned it before, like, a lot of people are writing a book for credential, no no judgment, but not what I'm doing here because I anybody can write a book. And or they're writing a book so they can increase their speaker speaking fees. I could care less. So the reason why I say that is when you put your heart and soul into a book, but then you realize like if you don't market the crap out of it, no one's ever gonna read it. Yeah. The book dies fast. So I realized that early on I was kind of prepared for it, but at the same time, it is amazing just how hard you have to work to make it successful. So then the question is, well, why am I pushing it? I'm pushing it because I wake up every day to another direct uh, DM from somebody who was on the other side of my dream of being like, if I write this the right way and I present it the right way and I use all my skills, I know I can unlock that person. And again, sounds so grandiose. And this isn't about self-aggrandizement. It's about purpose. Why the fuck am yeah. I here on this earth? You know, sure. that's happening. And that happens. And I'm like, oh, my God. And that's there's nothing more interesting about my given day than making that happen again. As a result, I've had to be unrelenting, unnaturally so, about continuing to promote the book. And because most people, especially I got the um, Wall Street Journal bestseller award. Now it's an Amazon bestseller all the time. It's sold tons of copies. Amazon, Bill, Bill, Barnes and Noble has a billboard outside Fifth Avenue with the whole book. Right? Like people are like, Matt, what, why are you still doing it? I'm like, it was never about that. Other things have been about that. They've been a means to an end. I want to do something. So the reason why I bring this up, it's really uh, forced me to have to live what I talk about in the book about dealing with the naysayers and the eye rolls of being like little cringy. <laughs> you know, yeah. so part of I've had to be like, if you don't like it, change the channel because yeah. I know that today I reached somebody who hadn't heard about it. And by the way, if the marketplace was telling me that the book wasn't effective, then I would have stopped and realized, oh, I failed. Let me try again. But it works. And that's the other reason why when I, you know, the publisher has been great, asked, you know, should we start working on the next book? And I've got this question. I'm like, I don't want to think about a next book. It feels, um, it feels disrespectful to the reader to make this effort about being a second book. What I more want to do, to be honest, and I'm working on it now, is I want to add chapters to the book and give it away. Why should I try to 
you know, treat somebody as like a LTV, you know what I mean? Like, how do I monetize? And uh, so that's frankly, I'm trying to identify, I think the gaps in the book, which which should have been more prescriptive and write another chapter. So that's what I'm working on. I love that, man. So, and and to to add some context for listeners that don't know the numbers, there's like a million books that come out per year that are published, and four million if you include, you know, self published. So, and I so, think, and I think, isn't winning, isn't winning like selling five thousand of a nonfit would be like a phenomenal success, right? Yeah, like I, I sold five thousand at launch, and was like, people were like, that's incredible, right? Yeah, and and, and, and it died pretty quickly thereafter, and I busted my ass post book launch. Yeah, so, and, and it's fun. Sometimes I'll get. Well, I don't even mind it because it's a natural deduction, but every once in a while I get criticized. Like, well, clearly you're just trying to sell books. So I was like, the word sell <laughs> is not in this conversation. Let me tell the unit economics, right? Each book costs $4 of four dollars in royalty and then obviously got to pay back the advance. I was like, but I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and yeah. no bullshit. feels like the best money I have ever spent in my life. I just got off a call right now. So fun. You could appreciate this. I get a, I get a message. I'm going to share this with everybody listening. I get a message from um, someone, a young woman, soon after the book came out and say, I just want you to know that I have been trying to figure out what to do. I have this great idea. I want to pursue it, but I didn't have the confidence to do it. I'm an investment banker. I read your book three weeks ago. I quit today. Today was wow. my last day. And I was wow. like, wow, of course I gulp. Like, oh, okay. But then like, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, well, I'd love to hear what it is. Right. Anyway, she circles back four weeks ago. Uh, and she sends me her pitch deck. She's like, can I send you my deck? I'm like, sure. I send the deck. I read the deck. I'm like, huh, she was right to quit. This is the uh-huh. person. This is the person that I was hoping. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, she quit her job. And now she's launching a company that could be, maybe it becomes Facebook. Maybe it doesn't. But she recruited you know, two other co-founders and she's going because of the book. It's like amazing. So when I think about why am I working so hard, if you could create a piece of art that could get somebody to cross that threshold and then they put something out in the world, it just feels like a life worth living. So anyway, I just got off that phone call. That's why I'm emotional about it. Cause it's so, it's like so amazing and she's all vulnerable and she, the deck is great. And this is our third session. And now tomorrow she has a meeting with Google ventures. She's wow. pitching. Like, this is all in the scan, you know, span of, you know, for me. So anyway, I'm preemptively apologizing to anybody watching me like, what is wrong with them? One, I'm tired. And by two, Two, the impact has been incredible. And last point about this, when you are in this society, we, everybody's been put in their corner. Like we live in like in a NASCARized society, a balkanized world where if you are of a certain socioeconomic background, you're a white male or you're, you're, you come from this, whatever you are, we've become so balkanized and believing we have nothing to take from each other, which is a shame. What's been most gratifying about the book is I get messages from people of all demographics, women, black, white, Hispanic, Australia, you know, India saying the book touched them. And now the book is being translated into um, Mandarin, into German, Korean, Vietnamese. So it's been pretty amazing. Thanks for That's giving a- me the platform to wax philosophical about where I am. No, so it's it's really cool to hear. And, and you know, like, I have a question on, on that. Um, but I, I think that I believe, and, and I'm a person, it's funny when you talk about anxiety, like I actually have had a lot of anxiety. I've actually over, have recently overcome it over the last year or so, which was a story in of itself. But um, but it's hard to do, it's hard to take risk. And I feel like as much as we live in a world where people want to support you and support the underdog, there's also a lot of people that like want to be right and say, like, I told you so when you fail, right? Yeah. And, and it's kind of a bummer 
and I think that they're just, you know, my experience, my learnings, my feelings around that is like, oh, they're just, they're, that's just a reflection of their own insecurity. It has nothing to do with you. You're, 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 you're a mirror for them. Um, and, and, you know, if you to come up, it's hard because there's a lot of inertia that you need. And you, and so I do see this idea of burning the boats, giving yourself an not giving yourself an out as being important. But at the same time, it fucking hurts when you fall flat on your face. Like people, like so. This is why I think yes, the idea of like taking risk and 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 what's the quote? It's like success is many fathers and failures an orphan. People will talk about their successes. They're not going to talk about their failures. What I love about your book is you talk about both. Um, and 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 I think that's honest and real. And when people, when all I hear is the people's wins, and I'm like, I want to hear about some of your losses, man. You know, I want to hear some of the tough stuff you did. So one of the, the question I had about burn your boats, just in general, and and I had, I didn't even have this on the list. The question is just something I just thought of right now is, you know, what are your thoughts about safe test about around if I want to go and try something before I burn the boats, before I like give myself an out, I do some safe tests first just to like vet my idea so let's use the girl that you just gave the example of that's an i banker that might have this like game-changing idea quitting your job is a lot of conviction and maybe she has enough savings and maybe she's in a position where she can totally take that risk but that's probably way lower percentage of people that can do that and then there's this idea of t- doing a safe test before you burn the boats what are you what are your thoughts on that yeah um, great questions. And this is actually what I yearn to do to like add another chapter to create a much more like um, prescriptive, right, formulaic chapter where I break free of the narrative form. So I could be very, very precise because I have strong ideas around everything you just said, right? So number one, um, language matters, right? Uh, you burn the boats for goals and not tactics is a really important principle because what I find when people burn the boats for a tactic, uh, they, 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 they find it very hard to iterate. And everyone has to iterate, right? So for what does that mean? Let's say you you have a product, you know, the squatty potty, only it doesn't end well. You know, it's like actually shit. <laughs> like, and, you, and, you, and, you, uh, and you, you know, you're all in on the squatty potty version 2.0 and uh, it's not working. Now, if your goal, though, was financial freedom, being my own business owner, a few money, you know, then you be le- you're less wedded to that manifestation, which is in the product that's not working. You're more comfortable with iterating through that product to something else. Another good idea. When people don't have the precision around, they make the mistake of thinking they burn the boats for Squatty Potty 2.0. Right. And, uh, so that's number one. You, gotta, you burn the boats for goals. And I, and I really mean that. When I talk in the book about my show being canceled, it's why I can effortlessly talk about failure because at the end of the day, I'm iterating to the ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is autonomy. That was version one. And now it's uh, ameliorating, if I can, redistributing my power and influence, like we talked about with that woman I just got off the phone with, right? Like that's now my burn the boats goal. Um, so, you know, that's that's number one. In terms of, you know, testing, 100%, right? Like it, not only testing, but uh, again, t- uh, one, a topic I want to go deeper into, into adding more to the book, is this risk matrix that I deploy. Uh, that is very important to the exercise of burn the boats. Burn the boats is about sequencing when when you contemplate mm. plan B and making sure that you've steeled yourself for the journey. And my process, uh, I don't think we covered it in detail the first time, so apologize no. for being redundant, but my process is four simple steps that takes place before I commit to the boat, to Harvard, to Shark Tank. You know, ask myself four questions. Number one, I embrace my inner catastrophizer 
what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I allow myself to run free. I confront it. Number two, uh, what would I do if the worst thing were to happen? And that enables me to surface the fact that our plan B is already hardwired into our factory settings. We know the crappy soul killing job we'd have. Mine hangs on my wall. It's called the law degree. I'd take the bar exam. <laughs> I'd hate my life, but I would do it. And then number three, probability. What's the likelihood that all these things I've been catastrophizing about actually materialize? And that confronts the fact that we are very bad at anticipating the things that go wrong. And most of them are reputational. And then number four, the most important part of the four-part exercise is my why. Why am I doing this? Like when your why is intense enough, it eclipses one, two, and three, you know, without even a question. That's important because what the research shows is that uh, that we it's when you think about the backup plan that creates the problem. If you're trying to put all your energy into plan A, this is a little bit master of the obvious, but it was fun to see it reduced to a study, right? That, that uh, operating in the back of your mind is going to make you hesitate. So the reason why I pair that with testing, when you've done the testing prior mm -hmm. to, it strengthens your conviction to burn the boats. When you, and the reason most people are afraid to test, I see this all the time, they're worried that this is going to be the only good idea they're ever going to have. No. And so they don't yeah. want to pressure test it because they're afraid the scrutiny will make it fall apart. And usually the people who do that are the ones who are running from a bad situation rather than running to a great idea, right? They're saying, and because the stakes are so high, if I pressure test this idea by, by actually experimenting, plan A, B testing it, if I get rejected, that means I got to go back to that hell that I'm trying to escape from. So I say to everybody, if you find yourself reluctant to scrutinize your own big idea, there's something corrupting your logic. It could be that you're afraid to be rejected because you think it's the only idea. And when you find yourself feeling that way, remember, you're burning the boats for a goal, not this specific manifestation. Never burn your boats for a tactic. So if your goal is you want financial freedom, make sure that that is the plan A. Right. And that gives you the freedom to iterate, maneuver. My goal is to have my own TV show that goes ahead and helps change the course of people's lives, reality show. So when my show on CNBC was canceled, which don't get me wrong, that was pretty painful given it didn't even air and they killed their whole slate of programming, I recovered because I'm like, I'm not done. Right. Like, like I haven't begun to fight and I am going to be on another TV show within 12 months that has a similar genre, similar error. So anyway, long way of saying, of course, A-B testing, of course, scrutinizing. I love that, man. And I'm going to, I want to give you, I want to give you an anecdote on my side because okay, I just, I just did what you're talking about recently since we last spoke. So a week or two before we spoke, I, I'm launching a private equity fund this year. And it was, oh, congratulations. And I'm like, thank you. And so I, it's in the wealth management space and it's kind of a unique idea in the space. And so right around the time I met you, probably within days of me meeting you, I got hooked up through a friend of a friend, a really good friend of a friend with a mutual friend who is a partner at a very large institution. If I said their name, everyone will know it. And he had sold his business for almost a billion dollars to, if I could all just say it, to Goldman Sachs. And so um, I said, "Hey, I want to test my idea against. I want he he's he, this guy sold a wealth management business for eight hundred million dollars to Goldman. I want to test this idea against him. I just want he the guy knows the space inside now. So to your point, I was not afraid of rejection. I wanted that. I wanted some feedback on on this big audacious thing I'm doing. Dude, the guy like it's not public yet, but the guy's my new partner. That's amazing. Yeah, and we're out well, there. We're we're starting capital rates for a quarter billion dollars potentially." 
that's incredible. Well, let's yeah. use that fact pattern. Let's go with it for a second because this is important and it's nuanced, right? Because I do believe who you consult with your nascent idea matters a lot. In fact, it could change the trajectory of your life. So back to what you opened with, like there are a lot of people who are not rooting for you. That's a fact. Now, it comes from a place I talk in the book. I argue for you should be empathetic to it because it's probably coming from a bitter, broken place. But, sure. you know, not everyone's, you know, we're not Mother Teresa, right? Like that takes effort. But nonetheless, the more important part is not how you feel toward them, how you insulate yourself. So if you consult the wrong people with your nascent dream, clearly your friend was not. You had the judgment to say, I can trust this person. Their feedback is legit. So the question is, who do you consult? Right. And I offer in the book uh, the framework for the idea of um, agendaless supporters, right? They don't have an agenda, the best you can identify. They're, they, they're self-possessed. They're not going to see in, in you something that they wish they had done and they're resentful mm -hmm. and they want to try to hold you down. Or they're your partner, your boyfriend, girlfriend, and they want to try to control you because they're insecure, whatever. Agendaless supporters who are pragmatic optimists, right? They both kind of yeah. go hand in hand. You need optim You have to be optimistic to build a business. You're launching a $250 million fund. Like, oh man, what a grind. And the market sucks and investing is paralyzed, but yet you go forward. So you are being optimistic, but you must be pragmatic too, right? And so when you, when you consult somebody, if they're just optimistic, you may get delusional nonsense and that doesn't help you. And if they're just pragmatic, you're going to get conventional wisdom and what you're doing is probably not conventional because it's new mm -hmm. and you're breaking out. So anyway, that is my simple framework, easier said than done, but it works for me. I'm always asking myself, are you an agendaless supporter? And yeah. are you a pragmatic optimist or, or are you kind of like, a, you know, like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a basically rain on everybody's parade? Yeah. So it's funny what you just said was what ended up happening from that conversation. He was a, an agendaless supporter and he's pragmatic. Is he said that's a great idea, but you guys need if you want that to be bigger, we need to change these two things, and and that's how and because the institutions will like that, and and I'm like oh I hadn't thought about that I had but not like in that way and it was just like a this minor pivot right, but the idea expanded ex massively and then to to your point previously, he went out and safe tested this against some of the largest private equity firms in the world and all of them were like we want to be in on this deal. <laughs> so he's safe testing the idea. I'm safe testing the idea, all of which with, again, agendaless, pragmatic people who want to give feedback. So I love, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I do think that I see this happen a lot with entrepreneurs that, that they'll come to me with their ideas. You know, I mentor a ton of uh, entrepreneurs and, and I'll, and I don't, I'm, I just want what's best for them. And I, and I, and I, and again, like your book's written with scar tissue, my life's, you know, what I'm saying right now, there's a lot of scar tissue behind this, right? I've, I've built and failed many, many times. And so what, I guess the point I'm saying is I see a lot of entrepreneurs, they have these grandiose ideas. They want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg and there, and there's going to be another Mark Zuckerberg. There's going to be another, another Elon Musk for sure. But, but they don't talk about the other million, you know, 10 million that you never heard of because they didn't, they weren't thoughtful about the risk they took. They weren't thoughtful about how they took the risk. I'm all for taking risk, but being thoughtful about it. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to kind of pivot a little bit in the conversation because I, you, you talk a lot about picking the right partners in the book, which I think that is, you know, it's funny. I was listening to Patrick Beck David and he was talking about this. He said, you know, there's like three things that matter if you want to be successful, you know, marrying the right person, you know, picking the right industry and picking the right city to live in. And, and, and I was like, oh, that's pretty smart. You know, good like, uh, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, I did a pretty good job on all three of those, but um, except one, the, the industry I picked was, was crap. But, um, and, and now I pivoted away from it. Um, 
but you talk a lot about this in your book. You talk about your wife as well. Uh, and so I'd love for you to kind of like talk about that because I think that this is an area that I've seen a lot of people fail in. And I'd love for you to kind of give your feedback and thought around it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I was... I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn, my platform of choice. But it's funny if, God forbid, you post anything personal, especially about your spouse. Like some people will explicitly say that that's not for here. I was like, "What are you an automaton? Like you're able? I didn't know you can compartmentalize so effectively that the person for which you've bonded yourself for potentially forever uh, doesn't really affect you in the office." But uh, right. like I, so one, I think we don't talk about it enough, and I think history shows you can't win a two front war. So if you have the wrong partner in your foxhole at the home front and you're trying to do something really hard, the energy leakage is going to make you materially less successful. And but we I find um, we're not mentored in how to make a good choice because that sounds unromantic. Right. What do you mean how to make a good choice? Like so we don't we're not given a ton of feedback about it. There's a lot of concealment when people have made a bad choice, not something people broadcast. And so we don't have a lot of data to help us make a good choice at the moment we make it. And so I. I, I believe that the reason why often people end up in relationships that don't suit them well is one, they don't think they deserve better, or two, mm. they don't think better is possible, right? So I, um, I fortunately am so blessed that I ended up with a partner who is the greatest force multiplier uh, in the world, Sarah. And we have been able to redefine our lives in a way that works for us. So in any context that I'm in, Sarah's by my side. So when I teach at Harvard Business School, uh, Sarah does the logistics for the class. She's in the back of the room. When I'm on the set of a TV show, Sarah's a production assistant. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just interesting. So, but I feel very passionate about this idea that a partner, sh partner shouldn't complete you. It should be a force multiplier. In the yeah. business context, interestingly enough, and we asked this at the end of every class in Harvard, uh, you know, when there are, the students are most interested when we have a tandem of saying, how'd you choose your partnership, right? They mm -hmm. want to know because they're trying to figure out they're vulnerable. Do I need a partner? And they always walk in the room presuming that you choose a partner to fill uh, competency gaps. Isn't that interesting? Actually, it's kind yeah. of a great, it's analogous to why we choose partners personally, right? We're like, you know, you complete me, right? Isn't there Jeremy, Jer uh, Jerry Maguire? Or you, you right, know, you right, right. Me, right. There's always some romantic notion of like, you complete me. And I think on the business front, you complete the business plan, right? So I'm not a numbers girl or guy, right? So now I've got the anal retentive accountant as my co-founder, right? And I think what happens as a result of that is when um, things get difficult, and, uh, you know, it becomes about much more than skill gaps, that relationship can fray. So when we ask co-founders, like the Magic Spoon team, right? I'm an investor in Magic Spoon Cereal. A lot of people out here will know that I wrote the, one of the first checks in the business, and they come to my class every year for five years. They're our longitudinal case study. And they get asked every year, how'd you choose each other? And they give the same speech. You choose a partner based on value alignment, even if the, both of you have the exact same skills because successful businesses are determined when everything goes bad. That is what's going to determine whether you're gonna win or lose, not when things are going well. And value alignment and value overlap is more important than skill gap. So I would say, actually, and I've never talked about this, it's the same exact thing on the, on the home front. You don't have to be carbon copies of your hobbies or this, because those aren't values. But what you value, you need overlap. And so anybody out here listening to this is trying to think about a co-founder. So in my book, I'll go into this a little more detail, but to extract one point that's really important. 
why like why you're choosing a partner in a business context is very important that people don't audit. A lot of people make a co-founder choice when I step into a bad co-founder relationship. It's because the person who was the disruptor, the innovator, chose a co-founder out of vulnerability and insecurity and a degree of, I don't know what I don't know. Let me pick somebody from the industry that will prop mm. up my credentials, that will make me feel less vulnerable. And what happens is the innovator, because they're disruptive, they had the courage to do it. Within a few months, maybe a year, they steady themselves and they're like, you know what? I hate this stupid industry. It's why it's disrupting it. And then when the if the person they chose the co-founder is a proxy, an emissary from yeah. the other side, the very thing you're trying to kill, they end up hating each other. So I would say to folks, <laughs> and again, I go in a book about how to choose one. It's hard to do it in this context, but you really want to audit. Why am I choosing a partner? Why do I need somebody equitized in this function? <laughs> and make sure... You're not choosing them because of some type of skill gap, because eventually you, if you have value alignment, you'll, you'll do jump ball. You'll divide and conquer. I love that, man. I don't know if you know this. I wrote a book called The Core Value Equation, which is how do you operationalize core values in a business. So I, I'm a core value evangelist, and so you're you're, you're speaking my language right now. Oh, but, really? But I, I should I should have skipped writing my book. I should have read your book. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I go deep on it. So if you want to, if, if anyone, oh, no, I will. I, I will definitely get it. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's it, it's a, it was a missing book in the market because people talk about values a lot, but it's hard to operationalize them in a business. And to your point, like you know, core values are the fundamental beliefs of a, of a person or an organization, right? So if you are at friction, and I, I hear what you're saying, if I'm trying to disrupt an industry and I'm misaligned from a value perspective with my co-founder, but they have a skill gap that I don't have, inevitably, like that's friction. Like I don't share their values. I and to your point, that doesn't come up like when you're having fun. That right. comes up when the shit goes down, you know, right. and, I, and, That's I, when you... and I think that's the alternative approach. I'm sure you covered this in your book. is like you have a, a strong visionary co-founder who is rigid in their vision, as Bezos would say, but flexible in their execution because they have the they have the, the, the presence and the confidence to, to lead the enterprise. But they have the self-awareness and the humility to identify that leader from the old regime tap the best out of them, but it'd be like, no, 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 I don't no, I don't agree with that. But I like the other stuff you're doing, Bob. You know what I mean? That's great. Right. You know, like restaurant operations, damn right, we gotta focus on getting our paper goods down below three percent, you know, but like everything else I'm gonna leave behind. That's to me when it works uh, great. And there's a great part of my book from Michelle Cordero Grant, who's a founder of Lively. And we go deep into why she chose not to have a co-founder. Wow. A lot of times it turns on, do I need somebody equitized who does have this skill gap? For example, if somebody comes to me and their business is fundamentally a tech business that is heavy, you know, UX and just a lot going into it, and they don't have any tech skills, I want to see a CTO co-founder, you know? Definitely. But at the end of the day, if it's something that we could hire and you don't have to have somebody day and night fighting for their family for the equity and you could hire it out, then it's fine uh, not to have a co-founder. Yeah. Yeah. I love that part in the book. I love, um, let's talk about Harvard a little bit. You were talking a little bit about, um, you know, first of all, you know, it, it, that's talk about a brand, right? Harvard's uh, like the, one of the best brands probably in the world. Um, you know, it's an unlikely position to get. How'd you get, I mean, how do you become a fellow at Harvard? I mean, like I, I probably, there's probably a laundry list of, of entrepreneurs and business people that want that credential and good luck to them on getting it. I, I'd love, I'd love to give us the cheat sheet. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, uh, I don't, I think there's, there's a lessons to be drawn from it. I don't know which parts you can emulate, but the, one of the lessons from me drawn is this, is this idea of uh, the joy of living is in the striving, right? The pursuit of perpetual growth. I felt this terrible melancholy after I finished Har uh, Shark Tank. Cause I was like, wow, that was really annoyingly hard. And, and uh, now that I mastered it, 
I'm trying to imagine what would be like harder? What's a, what's a bigger leap from here? And there was a moment when I just didn't have a vision for what could be harder. And I was, this is totally true. I was checking in on a couple of businesses that I own. I'm an investor in around uh, Harvard, the campus. And I was walking through and I was like, you know, I always wanted to teach and I never got a chance to teach in an elite setting or even be enrolled in an elite setting. I went to Queens College, which I love. And then I went to Fordham Law and I was on law review, but like, I never got to be at the top. I was like, I want to teach, but I don't want to just teach at my alma mater. It's like, I want to teach at Harvard Business School. What's it going to take? And I got an introduction. They get this phone call all the time. Some CEO is like, I want to give back. They're like, okay. And then they, you know, they, they erect barriers. Why don't you come up for a day? Why don't you sit in on some classes and learn the case method, right? All things meant to politely uh, run obstacles and throw things in front of you. I was like, okay. You know, and then I sat through the, the, the classes and, and I formed a delightful relationship with a guy named Len Schlesinger. And it actually stemmed from simply what's a need that the university has, the business school has, that is being un, unmet. And after spending time watching the case studies, this is where it came from and talking to Len, I realized all your cases are like Aubin Pan or, you know what I mean? They're, 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 they're just kind of antiquated, no disrespect, but like, they're, where's the hymns? You know, where are the, where, where's the Glossier? And like, and again, they had done a case study Glossier, but like, I, I have a huge portfolio of direct consumer businesses that are contemporary. And it's like, okay, I married that point with a, a, another idea, which is every time I meet a co-founder as part of our scrutiny of an investment for direct-to-consumer business, I'd say, like, what's your Amazon strategy? And so many of them have a fancy MBA from Wharton or, you know, wherever. And they hadn't litigated this question of, like, to Amazon or not to Amazon, certain very fundamental strategic slash tactical, you know, things that matter. And I was like, well, what are you getting for your quarter of a million dollars? Me naively thought that that's what business school was, like Apex Technical School. Like, you learn welding and, you know, customer <laughs> acquisition strategy. I have a law degree, right? So I just presumed that's what it was. I was like, what else is an MBA if it's not that? So I love my co-professor said, only somebody remarkably naive would propose what we ended up doing. So what, what the idea was... Let's create a very practical class where we bring the most contemporary case studies that actually reflect the students that are sitting in that classroom, women, all different people from all different walks of life doing cutting edge businesses that may in fact fail, you know, that matter for some reason. And let's break down the omni-channel journey. And that was the pitch. And the goal was, I wanted, I said this to the university, I want a 5X their tuition in, five, in one week. I want to give yeah. them a 5X return. So what's great is if you add up the speaking fees alone of what we've been able to bring through that door at HBS. Uh, there's no question we do. Last year, I had Kim Kardashian for Skims. I had Scarlett Johansson, Bobby Brown, Gary Vaynerchuk on it. But, but really, so I guess what's the, the case study, the takeaway is, uh, one, I wanted it and I was all in on it. Two, I kept the focus on the customer. What does the customer need? First, the institution. But what's the student going to feel that this is unique and special, right? And three, I respected the effort. I didn't attempt to collect a credential. Like the work that I put into HBS to this day, which I do with my wife, still takes six months. It still is arduous. I always make sure it's painful. We never repeat the same thing so that it's always respectful and fresh. And it's how I approach my book. Like when you do things for a credential, and that's why most people wouldn't do it because they would be like, I'm not going to put all this work in. I pay for the course, by the way, all the things that go into it. And um, so if there's a formula there, I think that's a formula. Know what the customer wants and eliminate yourself from the equation. Trust the fact that you'll get what you what serves you well to in the end. And I've maintained that focus the entire time. I've been there five years and I remain reverential of the institution and I and I never take the, the credential for, for granted.
So, so do you teach just a semester once a year? Is that how I do? It works? It. I do. I have this course with um, with a uh, professor Lunch Lessinger who's been there for like thirty years, amazing, and and uh, uh, I yell at Israeli, and we do 20, 20 classes over a week in what's called a SIP. It's these strategic intensive programs they do between the first and second semester, and then we bring every year. I try to double click on on some aspect of uh, direct to consumer omni channel journey. So last year was about. How do you generate subsidized CAC through storytelling, right? Like if you look at the businesses in DTC that actually work, it's usually through a storytelling machine. And that's where mm -hmm. celebrities have a distinct advantage if they're willing to put in the work. Kim Kardashian has built a multi, multi-billion dollar business with the ends uh, that is because her CAC is subsidized by being Kim. And Bobby Brown sits in front of TikTok and in her 60s and says, I got to turn the camera on myself. And like... Her customer acquisition CAC to LTV ratio is amazing. And so every year we double click. This year might surprise you what the sub theme is. You might guess it. The path to profitability <laughs> since well. <laughs> uh, we're all doomed. You know, yeah. no, one's no one's raising any money. It's just getting started. So how do you create a sustainable uh, DTC business? That's so cool. And so what's like uh, your best feedback you've got from the students that, that you appreciate the most? Oh, that's actually a great question. Where is it? It's my favorite, actually, treasure. Oh, it's over there on my desk. Um, when I finished the first semester, it was amazing. And I get put my heart and soul into it. I talk about it in the book. And then uh, at the end of the class, they give a standing ovation for like two minutes. And my professor, co-professor Len goes, you know, this isn't natural. <laughs> this isn't what normally happens. But yeah. at the end, it was like a receiving line. Everybody felt like it was a magical experience. And it really was. It was an intense week together. And one of the students hands me a note. Uh, and he says, read this when you get home. And uh, it was a handwritten note. I read when I get home. And he writes in the note, this kid was a, like a genius. And he writes, um, I had soured on the institution because it's not a place for entrepreneurs. And I had already gotten enough. And I was contemplating leaving after, after this uh, program. Like, crazy. But your class delivered such a return on my investment that it's the best thing I've ever taken here. I'm going to finish it up. I was wow. like, that's amazing that in the abstract, having never met that kid, having thought about what was missing from this experience that I thought I might be able to deliver and identifying that gap again, engineering an outcome, right? Like the book I'm engineering an outcome. And then I get the letter and there's the feedback and the universe closes the loop. And so that's why I'm now addicted to the experience and the work, because I know there's another person in that room who's like, Oh, that was amazing. And so I'm very grateful. You know, I like everything in life. You, you imagine what it would be like to teach at HBS and have that credential. And then once you have it, you take that part for granted. The good part. Sure. So, it's lost its resonance on me emotionally. Uh, it doesn't move me. What moves me is the privilege of being in that room, teaching and delivering an insane experience. I always say it's a concert. I deliver a concert in a ballroom, you know, like, and we're always thinking, oh, should we, should we expand it? Should we take it to other countries? And I just love the idea of doing something exceptional that only a hundred people got to witness that everybody's yeah. trying, trying to see. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think that there's this, this is probably partially being an entrepreneur, partially pressure of the commercialization of anything and everything is that this, oh, how can I scale this or make this big? And the reality is like, or how can I just make it super cool and small and make it special, right? And One of the conversations I give to the students all the time, because, uh, yeah. you know, when you're in this environment, especially in an, an elite environment like that, you there's almost like an insecurity and a shame, like, oh, my idea might only generate 10 million a year. You know, and I always, I always manage to put in there like, don't overlook just how hard it is to take $1 and take and turn it into $2 and how noble it is to be able through the work of your own hands, build something that feeds your children, 
right? Like that's it. And when your darkest moments and you put yourself in a situation which you wish you could get out of, you know, when you're over the toilet bowl in college and you're praying to the God, to your maker, like, please, I will never drink again. When you're, when you build your business and it looks like it's going to go to hell at that moment, you'd be like, I wish I just kept it simple. You yeah, know, totally. why did totally. I, why did I need more? And so I just try to pull forward that, that toilet bowl moment for everybody to be like, they're going to come a moment where you're like, why didn't I just keep it simple? I was making a few hundred grand or I was going to make a million dollars. Like, so I I'm with you, man. Like not everything needs to be scaled. Things only need to be as big as they were meant to be. I know that's like a tautology, but like you have to ask mm -hmm. yourself, what's the full expression of this idea? It needs to be no more. It's always my view towards founders. We don't have exit provisions in any deal at, at RSC Ventures. Not a single deal has a has an exit provision because philosophically we believe, I don't know, We'll sell it when the world says it's time to sell it. That may that mean that might mean you're having a breakdown. It might mean we no longer have product market fit, or we or somebody's going to you know kill our product. Like whatever. I we just again we're not a fund, so I don't have to worry about it. But I, I believe mm -hmm. that philosophically, things don't need to be fully expressed to the extent to which that was intended by whomever, the universe, the founder. You know, but but this inevitable gravitational pull to make things scale is, I think, very corrosive. Yeah, I. I, I... I'm with you, man. I want. I want to. Uh, we. Got, I know your time's limited. We got about 12 minutes left. Um, I want to talk about two things. So, and and I just took notes off the our last the end of our last episode. So, my own interest is around kin insurance, the SPAC that that you yeah. you, you worked on, and I was Let's like, and and I know we're talking about wins and 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 you know quote unquote failures, but I mean. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about proprietary insights. Okay, so, love so let's do, let's do, can, let's do those two and then we'll, we'll get you out of here. But yeah, let's talk about kin insurance. This was a massive thing that you were working on. Stack market kind of took a shit that, that screwed that opportunity up. Um, yeah. I want I tell the audience a little bit about that. I mean, I think it's a great example of going all in and sometimes it doesn't work out, but I want to, I want to hear about that. Yeah. And also it's a great example. I don't get into the book as much too, but it's also a great example of when things go wrong, they usually are evident at the beginning of the journey, to be honest. Mm. I really believe that fish rots from the head, as they say in Italy, but also anybody who's been divorced could probably identify the problem that started and it was present on the wedding day. You know, there might be manifestations of it. Maybe that's not always the case, but I believe as a general principle, that when it goes wrong, it was it was obvious. So let's talk about my SPAC journey. During the pandemic, I, I didn't buy into the craze, but I thought there was an opportunity to create a SPAC around the omni-channel journey, what I know, almost bring those learnings that, uh, from HBS and put together a, a team of consumer Avengers in a SPAC, all with tremendous expertise to unlock the target company and do things the right way. And uh, in, in retrospect, that was probably naive. But nonetheless, in this very chair, in my boxer shorts, I was able to raise $206 million. And I raised the money in November of 2021, I believe, or 2020. And uh, I ring the bell at the stock exchange, and I get COVID. And I get double pneumonia, come within you know, an inch of my life. Wasn't hospitalized, but I was very sick. I kept trying to avoid going in. I had two ascimeters on my one finger, just in case what was wrong, the other one. <laughs> and uh, anyway, long story short, I overcome it. And then we set about to identify a company. We identified a great company called Kin Insurance, which is a direct-to-consumer uh, insurance model. Back then, the CAC to LTV was 7.9. These numbers are burned into my brain. You know, raised millions of dollars to put this together from sponsor capital. Um, identified Sean Harper, the CEO, put together a merger agreement, did everything that goes you know, into it. And on the eve of, of uh, consummate, com, uh, consummating the merger in January uh, of, uh, of last year, uh, the market falls apart. And uh, I, I rather than 
do a terrible deal, which is what happened in LS space. We, we, um, we gave back the money, $206 million, and I took the hit, which is very important, by the way. Some of the worst decisions you ever make in life are when you try to you know, get out of one problem by creating a big problem that papers over the pain. It's always, always better to take the pain, take the hit. Now, unless that this is a situation where persistence can get you out of it, that's very different. But this objectively, no amount of persistence was going to lead me out of it. It was actually going to go ahead and create a worse deal. So now a couple of things. I love this company to this day. And I treated the process as like I'm bringing my company home to mom. You know, we're going to live in the house with this company for the rest of my life. So I, I see the CEO. I still go to Chicago. My partners are invested in it. And you know what I love about it? He hit every single number that was in that SPAC deck. You know, a lot of these SPACs, nice. shit deals, whatever, every single number. But the, but the, I think the takeaways are a little bit, when I was doing the deal, I knew the SPAC market was going to collapse. Didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out because I saw all these people getting access to easy capital from the banks. And the banks were the big enablers of the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. What do we care? We're, and they kind, of, they kind of like laughed at it, but they took the fees. You knew right. it wasn't going to end well because every character was raising a SPAC. But my... I, I knew that, but I thought I could outrun it, and I thought mm. I could outperform it. And when I did the deal with Kin, which is a highly regulated company, you know, at the end of the day, it was going to take a long time, a lot of regulatory hurdles. Like the idea that you can outrun your own instincts about why something is not going to work is mm, usually tough. never true. So if I'm scrutinizing my decision making, don't. If you are sure about how things are going to play out and things are going to end poorly for a space. If the only way you do well is if you outrun the danger, it's better to uh, abort. And I yeah. should have I should have aborted. Interesting. But well, that being said, I'm glad I chose well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I I think that if there's a lot of people that did well, like at least some better than others. Um, I know someone that became a multi-billionaire, and he was one of the first facts, right? And and I and he's still a billionaire. So, you know, yeah, but like, you, but can, we, can we talk about another principle from it? So I talk about this, too, all the time that um, at, um, at every uh, every crisis creates an equal and opposite opportunity. Right. Right. And, and and but the problem is that is not a self-executing sentence. The opportunity from a crisis doesn't sort of present itself on a platter. You have to one, believe that there's an opportunity to be mined and then you have to go mining for it. Right. So when this back happened, I was like, OK, there's got to be more to gain here than I lost, because that's the decision I get to make. Everybody listening to me right now, when something happens and something is taken from you, you have a decision to make to extract more value than what was taken from you. Mm-hmm. And it is, and I'm not talking about mortality and losing a loved one, but in every other area of your life, if something is taken, you have a decision to make that you will extract more. And so with the SPAC, I was like, all right, now I understand how public markets work. I understand how bankers work, which I, you know, there's so much Oliver Stone talk. Oh, the system is fake. Like there is the commissioned class is highly incentivized to generate those commissions. And there's a lot of um, veneer and window dressing around, you know, diligence and all this other stuff that I, but here's what I, I thought the markets were much more perfect. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. wisdom of crowds. Everybody has the same general data, right? S1s are very, you know, clear. And what I learned is that that's actually not the case because judgment is what makes the difference. Insight asymmetry is how you make money in the world. And the insight that I was able to glean is how public markets work, how banks work. And so, you know, fast forward, I've benefited from those insights in so many ways, including trading derivatives that I do now all the time. I have, way, I have made way more money than I lost through understanding derivatives. And I've been on CNBC in the last six months, 22 times. Wow. So... You know, I talk about my book, Reaching People. There's always a way. So now when I'm keeping score, notwithstanding double pneumonia, 
<laughs> and all the pain. I I have now crossed the threshold that I have extracted more value that was taken from me through the failed spec. And that is not rhetoric. that is not rhetoric. That is that is a truth. That took me a couple of years, but that's how I feel. So obviously, that doesn't make the pain feel less painful when it's happening. Right. Or, or me not tell you that it was a mistake. That's why I don't like the bullshit. Right. I could be sitting here like, I'm glad I did it. Like, no, that's a lie. That's not the yeah, same. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> fuck that, right? Like, of course I'm not glad. That's different than saying, but I'm not a loser, right? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to figure out how to extract more value from it. Yeah, so so let's let's double click on that. So is it that okay? Is it that okay? Here are the cards that are in front of me. Here's the here's like the pr- probability of of win versus loss. I'll make I'll take the pain. I'm taking the pain trade because I I don't I know that it, it could be worse if I stay in it, or the probability of it being worse is such that I don't want to do that. So I'm going to take the pain. I'm taking the hit. Now, is it okay? Let me try to go and dig to your point. Mine for the win. Or like, how do you think through that? Or you're like, look, I just know I'm going to do it naturally because that's how I'm designed. Like, walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I think I, th- I would say yes, but I am designed that way. But uh, I, I still, at the end of the day, have to have the fundamental belief that there is something to be mined, which I question every single time I count the fact pattern. I'm like, oh, but this is really bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this was two years and it's millions of dollars. And like, I was so sick and I put on a billion pounds and like, it was a bad decision. So I have to re up my faith because that start, mm-hmm. starts with there. And then I have a simple process for how I process failure. I write about in the book, but I really do stick to it. Again, master of the obvious, but I'll say it, right? The most important thing we, when we have a failure, our first priority tends to be to protect our reputation. And that is completely misplaced energy because nobody really gives a shit about you because they're self, sure. they're completely uh, self-absorbed, right? And they're also worried about their own failure. And so your, your first uh, priority should be to protect your self-esteem. Mm. And that is not through delusion. That is through uh, preventing enmeshment using now I'm being like armchair psychologist, but preventing your identity from becoming enmeshed with a single act of failure. So here's my four step process. One, I acknowledge I've failed. I need to take away the power of it, right? And be like, all right, you know, <laughs> you ever see the movie Departed? I love the movie Departed. This is my favorite uh, scene. Yes. Yeah. Random little scene at the end. Matthew, um, God, what is his name again? Uh, you know, the uh, the lead character. Uh, oh, um, is it Matt Cop. Damon? Matt Damon. At the end, he gets confronted with Mark Wahlberg, right? And Mark's got his little shoes on in the apartment and he's got a gun to him. And he starts pleading, right? He's like, and he's like, well, you know, and he goes, and he goes, all right. And then he shoots him in the head. You know, like, <laughs> when you acknowledge your failure, you're like, fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so one, I'm a failure. Two, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. Two, one, I have failed. Number two, but I am not a failure. You're Three, right. what is this failure trying to teach me? Because there's something in there that it's both trying to teach me, but it's also something it's trying to give me which I should have expanded about more in the book, but like it's those two things, teach and give. When I identify those things, number four, I'm burying in the backyard. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, not that I don't have to bring it up. Like we're talking about now, it's not painful or traumatic. Me talking about sure. little sweet Isabella brings more emotion, right? It makes me want to cry about this girl who's launching her business than my stupid spack that I lost a lot of money, you know, but I buried in the backyard. So here's why mindset's so important. If I had a victim mindset, and believe that the world is against me or that it's not my fault, then I would not be able to go through that sequence because my victim mindset would derail the sequence. I would have stopped from the inquiry because I would Mm. believe I have no responsibility here. So a very important part of the mindset I always maintain, and people think this is very harsh, I believe my base case interpretation of all facts around me are that it's my fault. 
And the reason why is if something is my fault, that means I have the power to go ahead and do something about it. When something is not my fault, then I have no power to do anything about it. And then, of course, people bring up random fact patterns. Well, what if a dog bit you, Matt? You know, like, I was like, well, maybe I let the gate open. You know, like, but anyway, yeah, yeah. The bottom line is, obviously, there's situations in which you sure. are. But then here's, the, but then the burden becomes, if you have been truly victimized, not a victim, but have victimized, you now have a new obligation, which is not to mine for opportunity, is to decide how you're going to respond to those facts, right? Am I going to now uh, make my identity around being a victim, or am I going to go ahead and uh, and decide, you know, I I I I have control, I have agency? I remember when I had testicular cancer. This again seems a little harsh, but let's just be honest. When I had testicular cancer, and I knew I wasn't going to die, then I sort of became kind of interested about how the exceptionalism of being a guy with a GD, a law degree, and one ball. I was like, I might be the only guy in the world who has those credentials, you know? <laughs> and I, I can. And then I kind of was also be like, sure is nice not to care about earthly things that bother me all the time against the juxtaposition of potential death. And but then I went to group therapy because I was like, you should really get therapy. You seem maladjusted. I was like, I don't know. I feel perfectly adjusted, but I guess I'll go to group. Th I went to group therapy and it was with a bunch of other men. And we were talking about, you know, going through that and everything with it. And it was a lot of um, talk about disfigurement. And I was like, I didn't particularly think it was a very attractive body part. Any like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> yeah, I, just, just can't. I did. And what I did learn from it going to that that people do respond so fundamentally different to a crisis and tragedy. Some yeah. people feel it. Some people feel it's confirmatory uh, wow. more evidence that this is what was, but, and others feel like it's an aberration. I always yeah. choose to believe it's an aberration. It's my responsibility. And I retain my agency to do something about it. And it all came from reading man's search for meaning wow. the book written by Holocaust survivor, which I think yeah. is probably top five greatest books ever written in the world. Um, but anyway, that's my mindset. I'm sorry to give you a very long answer, but like that is my sequence for how I keep staying in that loop. And it is so, so, so true. If there's one takeaway from my book, it said that every opportunity, every crisis yields an opportunity if you first believe it and two, uh, you mine for it. Yeah, it's, it's really important what you just said. And I, I want the listeners to really like kind of pay attention that if, if it's confirmation of, of something you deserve then you have to really question, A, who's the person that really cares that much about you having bad shit happen to you, right? Like right. God doesn't, uh, I don't think right, God right. cares, just so we're clear. By the way, but, great but, point, very narcissistic to think that anybody gives a shit that you're, you know, that bad things happen yeah. to you. Right. Yeah, no one cares, right? And, and, and I don't think God cares, that's for sure. And, and but, but, but then you have to question, like, if I think that way, how am I even remotely capable of learning from it or finding the opportunity within it? Because in my experience, when you have that, what was me? I'm a victim. Bad things are happening to me. I wish this wasn't ha happening to me. You are self-absorbed. You're self-focused. There's no way you can even open your eyes to the the possibilities because you're you're looking within. You're looking outside. So I love that, man. And I know I we're running By out. The way, of to that point, the, it's a slight distinction because you can relate to this. I do think when you have a degree of um, anxiety, either it's a trauma response, of, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we use PTSD so colloquial, but let's just say that, or it's whatever neurochemical. Um, that is different because that could not be conscious. Those could be intrusive thoughts. Those could be those could be dread. 
I don't know about you, but like I would always have this boogeyman dread hanging over me that wasn't rational that I still have to work through. That's different. That's like you trying to harness your brain. It could be your amygdala as a grapefruit because of what you've been through. It's a very different kind of thing. We're talking about when you make a conscious decision to conclude the world is out to get me. And that right. alone can ruin your life. And it's not an excuse to say you have anxiety about to why you are conjuring that as a belief structure. And that's very different from those feelings of dread that some people out here experience, which is a hard thing to manage. I mean, to your point there, I used, I, my identification was I'm an anxious person. And I, and then I had this moment where I'm like, what, what does that even mean? Right. Right. And I'm like, no, I like, no, I'm what, I'm whatever I want to be. And, and that's then, why with the, book, with the book, it's like when people say, I'm not a risk taker, I'm trying to reach that person. Like you realize you're self selecting out of ambition because everybody's a risk wanter because we know on the other side of risk is reward. So when you say I'm not right. a risk taker, you're like, but now I'm going to foreclose the benefits of risk. Right. The yeah. words we use around ourselves are, can be so uh, corrupting. Right. And they and they, they do in many ways dictate the outcome. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so, look, you want to talk proprietary insights for a couple minutes? You yeah, go. let's do it. I like proprietary insights. Let's talk about so, that. Yeah, it, it was. It it yeah. So so you were talking about it earlier, really. It, it's this, you know, I mean, an example was, gosh, you were talking about it. And I was like, oh, that's a proprietary insight. It's essentially these little things that we learn as we're going through our life and, and either going through the wins or going through the challenges or working within an industry in a really particular way. And you start to, you know, like there's this osmosis that happens. This is my understanding of the word, and maybe I'm yep. misunderstanding it, that I start to have these little insights that give me an edge. And what can I then take from those and apply them either cross-functionally in a different industry or within my industry in a deep way that other people don't understand to, and from my, I'm going to use like banker term, to create alpha. I can create alpha because there's an inefficiency there and I have an insight and I'll take this over here and that over there and combine them. And you'd only know that, that thing over on the left because you had been so deep in one thing to know that you could apply it in this other way. Am I, did I get that right? I mean, wow. <laughs> like beautifully spoken. I, I'm just going to let that mic drop sit for a second. That's perfect. <laughs> exactly. No, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I, I zeroed in on it as partly a reaction to Shark Tank, right? We love Shark Tank. It's a great show. But Shark Tank perpetuates the myth that in order to have a, a business and be free, you need a patent. You need an invention. If you think about everything on the show, it's kind of a product. It's usually an invention. Not always, but it's a product, right? And I actually think that's a total misrepresentation of what it means to have a business. What a business is usually a better way of doing something, a different way of doing something. And it could be minor changes in execution or it could be fundamental. And so I wanted to explain to people, and where do those things come from? What are those things? And I don't have any of those things. I'm like, yeah, you do. And so it's proprietary insights. And every single person listening to this has an insight into the way something can be done better or different that is in some way monetizable. That monetizable could be through a raise. It could be starting your own business, whatever it is. And they come from the stream of data we sit through. I love your point. It's through osmosis. It's not usually calculated. It's you're being constantly confronted with data, 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 either from where I live, my community, my family, my business, my industry. And you begin to see patterns of like, I sure don't know why we do it this way. And, and usually the answer is like, well, that's how it's always been done. Right. And so, you know, in Harvard and HBS, my course, we call it Sleepy Tams. You know, a bunch of kids who walk down the uh, magic spoon, walk down the, uh, the cereal aisle and are like, you know, the health food packaging looks like medicine and like and like you're being punished for being healthy. And the bad stuff is addictive. What if we changed the packaging and presented good cereal that was protein based, 
but made it look whimsical and nostalgic like Lucky Charms. So that was their proprietary insight, and it came because they had just done a cricket protein business, right? Michelle Cordero Grant was the uh, vice president of marketing at Victoria's Secret. And she kept feeling alienated by her own product that she was putting out. She's like, why does our marketing seem completely tailored to a man's over-sexualized perception of what is comfortable and attractive for a woman to wear when I'm the one wearing it? And I wonder if there is a subset of the population which would be interested in, in undergarments that were marketed based on what feels good, comfortable, or whatever, but unrelated to a man's opinion. She goes ahead. She crowd tests this idea. Back to your A-B testing, right? She completely did it like Jedi crowd tested it. And to see, and next thing she got like 100,000 people on her list. She launches that business. That's her proprietary insight. There was another way to communicate and market. How crazy is this? Launches the business. I think I'm going to use the numbers, make them up. 2015, sells it for $100 million five years later off of proprietary insight. So wow. part of what I want to do by, I, th I made up this word, these two words, because that's what's great when you have a book. It's like sociology. You just get to make stuff up, pseudoscience. But it does sort of explain the point that I, I use the language so I could help people identify, oh, okay, I have that thing. I know what you're talking about. I don't have an invention, but I have a proprietary insight. And then I use the case studies in the book to show, okay, this is what it might look like to bring that idea to fruition. What I find with a lot of people, unfortunately, that have a proprietary insight, a great idea, what they want to do now is like, okay, like I got a really great idea. You've gotten these phone calls, right? Like, you know what there should be? There should be this, there should be electric, you know, uh, you know, electric charging stations that are, you know, omni-channel businesses where I can do all this great stuff. I'm like, cool. So, hey, you want to like run with it and uh, and uh, give me some equity or, or patent trolls who are like, you know, want to sell you their patent. It's like, that's where most proprietary insights go to die is that people don't want to do the work. They want to go back to Netflix, Netflix and chill. And like, that's not how it works. So it's not enough to have the insight. But, uh, but first, my point of that phrase is to give you belief that there's a wide, wide number of people, probably everybody on this uh, listening to this, who do have proprietary insights that are great. So my mission is to show you how to identify it, what it looks like, and then understand that's very different than needing to have an invention or a patent. I love it, man. Oh, Matt Higgins, man, like you and I, we could just hang out together for like five hours. This is no, just this like is so, great. So... No, thank you for uh, no, thank you for giving me the format. I mean, back to the book for a second. Like, it's so funny. I've been I decided I'm going to stay at an unrelenting pace for a year of my life. Just going to go ahead and communicate to every single person who reads the book. I'm going to go ahead and I feel an obligation to somebody who makes radical change, do my best to give encouragement and uh, nothing feels more important. So anybody who gives a platform like you're doing right now, I feel such enormous gratitude because I know somebody's going to listen to this interview, read the book and you and I together, we, we help change the trajectory of their life. We are not the general, the, the genesis, but we might become the catalyst. And that's pretty amazing. Definitely. The book is Burn Burn the Boats, and people can get it anywhere and everywhere. So go out there, get it, get it for yourself. I know it supports Matt, and he's just supporting, trying to support you and your work. But uh, and and I know that you. And we were talking about this earlier. The economics of no one's getting rich off a book. So you're not doing this for money. You're doing this for the purpose, which is the most awesome reason to do it. Um, but yeah, go and support the the book. I, I'm telling you. My goal is to read 52 book, books this year. I'm at 34, and and it's it's top of the chart so far out of those 34. I really love the book. I've been telling everyone to read it, and um, you got to do it too. So Matt, Thank my friend, so much. so much, so much gratitude here at the Greatness Machine. Really appreciate you, my friend. 
We really, uh, is Let's there anything else that we, that, did I miss no, something? Do we want to promote? No, no, not at all. The only thing I would ask, first of all, thank you. The only thing I would ask for anyone, if you've read the book and something's happened, DM me. I read every single DM and the DM that you send me, uh, not because I need the ego gratification. It's because I need to know that the effort is worth it while when you send me that DM, you buy me another day. So to this morning, I got one from somebody in Africa who bought me another day, buy me another day by sending me a DM about how the book uh, impacted you. And then let's do this a year from now. All right, I'm game, and I'm gonna throw another thing in there. Go and give him reviews on the book because that helps promote the book for other people. And and most people like don't realize that reviews matter for a book. It really helps for other people to see the book. So I'm gonna say, don't just DM Matt. Give him a review. He deserves it. It was a damn good book. I'm so excited for the work it's gonna create out there for all. I have a friend. Um, oh gosh, Yannick Silver. Do you know Yannick? Have you mm-hmm. heard of him before? Yeah, yeah I've heard of. Yeah, yeah. So his his core purpose, and you talked about, is for his candle to light a million candles. And that's exactly what your book's doing. I love that. By the way, your point about reviews, I think I, this is my penance for never writing a review ever before I did this. And now I'm at the mercy of them. And it's kind of, I feel like this is God hazing me. Now I do maybe <laughs> do feel like a victim, but I deserve it. Because <laughs> I never did. I'm like, oh, I feel so guilty. And by the way, not only that, I buy everybody's book. You should see my house hundreds and hundreds thousands yep. of people's books because i'm like i feel bad and i just order <laughs> order it so if you have a new yeah. book you have a new book and you need another sale you dm me it will yeah. it'll be the easiest close you ever had <laughs> totally <laughs> guys uh matt i appreciate you my friend everybody share this episode with those that need to hear it go buy the book give a review dm matt until next time peace out we love you guys You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode, you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. 
Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.